face being forced to grow up far too quickly. To be the oldest of five in a single parent home. Having to raise your brothers and sisters because you had no father present. And a mom struggling just to survive. Having to overcome giant size obstacles and poor choices as you tried your best to take on a role that was never intended for a child. Maybe some of you listening can relate all too well. Hello, and welcome to the Standing Stones podcast. I'm your host, Mike Weissman, and in this week's episode, I had an opportunity to have an incredibly honest and inspirational conversation with my guest, Egypt McKee. Egypt is a life-changing speaker and a mentor to young people all across the country. He's the founder of Out of Egypt Ministries, where he has reached over one million young adults, challenging them to take ownership of their choices in life. Egypt concludes each of his talks with the words, be encouraged. I hope that's exactly how you'll feel after listening to today's episode. Enjoy. Egypt, welcome to Standing Stones. Thank you, Mike. I am honored beyond words right now, and uh, congratulations on the new podcast. Uh, It is an honor for me to be here with you and uh, not only see this launch, but to uh, be a part of the standing stone that'll be essentially the earmark for many others to uh, listen in and be a part of uh, the growing experience that you have laid out for everyone. So thank you. Absolutely, Egypt. Well, let me start with the most obvious question. I know it's probably <laughs> on the minds of all of the listeners. Let's, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that m- very memorable name that you've been given? Where, 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 did, where did Egypt come from? Oh, Lord have mercy. Well, <laughs> This is one of those things where I always say, I need a business card on this matter, (laughs) because if I had a nickel for every time I was asked that question, I'd be a rich man by now. (laughs) But uh, interesting enough, I'm not the first Egypt in my family line. My great-grandfather's name was also Egypt. However, my mother, when uh, she was pregnant with me, decided she wanted to be so unique, so different, so out there that she just prayed to God and said, Lord... I'm going to open the Word of God, and I, whatever I point to, that's going to be the name of my son. <laughs> wow. Um, you know, that could have went sideways <laughs> more than you can possibly imagine. I mean, there's Beelzebub. Okay, we dodged that one. Jezebel, we dodged that one, too. Um, you know, there's a couple of Judas, little baby <laughs> Judas, you know. Uh, Isn't he we, cute? Yeah, we, yeah, exactly. So Moses led his people out of Egypt. I get Egypt. I didn't get Moses. I always thought Moses was kind of a cool name. But you know yeah. what? Egypt is not only my name, it's it's the name that God appointed for me. Mm. So what some people see as a random act in a mother closing her eyes and pointing in the Bible and saying that's going to be it, uh, God saw as a divine appointment, appointment right up front, long before I was even born. So to me... I wear it, I live it, I, that is who I am, um, and as a responsibility to that as well, there's always a testimony behind that. So in, in a lot of ways, it's a very unique way to bridge a relationship with someone who, quite frankly, you just don't see Egypt's walking around that often. You know what's interesting about that is that it's, it's quite uh, apropos that the title of this podcast is Standing Stone, because I'm sure that when people ask you, as I, I, they must almost every time you meet somebody, yeah. how did you get that name? It actually gives you an opportunity Absolutely. to tell the story. I love it. Well, Egypt, let's get right into the heart of this discussion. Sure. Um, I, as I mentioned in your introduction, and I've come to know this about you, your foundational years, 
um, growing up as the oldest of five in a single parent home. Mm-hmm. Um, that must have been an extremely challenging time for you personally. Indeed. So help us kind of paint the picture of, of what Egypt's growing up years looked like. Sure. First, I'd like to begin with, there are more than enough studies out on the market by licensed therapists and experts in the field of psychology and sociology and all kinds of family studies that will tell you uh, about birth order. So uh, the first thing that you mentioned there was that I'm the oldest of five to a single parent. It's the oldest of five. That's kind of a loaded story. It's technically, it's true, but it's uh, technically a little different than that. So I'll, I'll parse this out so that the listening audience can understand. My brother and I, who is two years younger than I, my closest brother in birth order to me, so I am the oldest, uh, was born when my mother was 18 years old. So anyone can do the math. You can see that she was a minor, still living at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and growing up for me, uh, particularly in East Cleveland, Ohio, uh, urban mm-hmm. East Cleveland, Ohio, at a time when, uh, and this is, uh, we're talking generations ago, but it seems like yesterday to me, but, uh, you know, your neighbors could discipline you, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that was a time when uh, we had things that we call spankings. <laughs> I remember and, those. And then we had a different kind of discipline depending on where you were in the progression, uh, a whooping. Mm. Okay. And then, of course, there was the Ph.D. of all <laughs> discipline, and that was called a beating. All right. So yeah. and, and in my neighborhood, you know, it was it, it didn't depend. It didn't matter on inanimate objects like tree branches a shoe might be laying around, a belt could come off. It just depends. I mean, a parent was always equipped with that disciplinary enforcement tool. So we learn respect early on. So for me, I learned what I consider to be the navigation yes. of safety. Mm. So learn to shut your mouth, mm-hmm. right? When, a, when an adult is talking to you, 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 don't, you, you don't, here's a couple of things you don't do. You don't flap those two things around your lips. Yes. Okay. You don't flap those. And then you don't do what they call rolling your eyes Mm -hmm. because I've heard things like, uh, I'll smack those eyes into the back of your head. I, I was always afraid of that. Like my eyeballs would get stuck in the back of my, actually happened. Exactly. Like I'd be the only kid in the neighborhood with no eyeballs, you know, (laughs) and needing help trying to get around just to get to school. So uh, I, Mm. there was a sense of, uh, I think, uh, embedded fear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> with with just breathing. So I valued breathing and uh, I valued walking upright. So uh, my position as the oldest, not having a father in home, okay, remembering that because that yeah. would be the genesis of my fear, my hatred. It was a, it was a two-pronged beast mm. that this person, this office, this entity was never in my life. So the person who filled that void was my late grandfather. Mm. So he was what I saw men to be. Uh, Granted, he was someone I could see. um, But for me and my brother, we were just a two-person ragtime kind of crew that made it through that time in history. And, uh, you know, we learned to to navigate by being polite. And we were enforced with all the yes, no, Thank you. Please. You're welcome. I'm sorry. Yeah. So that became a part of our DNA. 
it is not a part of the DNA and the culture and the structure today. Yeah. So uh, we we learned those things early on. So E was your was your grandfather in the community? I mean, was he was he in East Cleveland with with you or? Absolutely. Okay. So here's here's what's great about that. This was uh, and it's kind of hard to describe these dwellings, but. Imagine a big house where technically each floor is a completely separate unit. So he owned the house. He and my grandmother lived on the first floor. Mm. My mother, my brother, and I lived on the second floor. And then there was a third floor, quite frankly, that was a separate unit that was rented out from time to time. Not always. Matter of fact, I remember it being vacant more than I ever remember a tenant ever being there. Yeah. Uh, and quite frankly, for my brother and I, that was our our jungle play PlayStation sure. place to run around and act a fool because it was considered to be more like an attic. Yeah. Um, but yes, he was physically present, hard worker, man of the community, a community advocate, uh, more so than what you might consider an activist today. Yeah. Uh, things were done in a sense of compromise and respect then, even in opposition, violent opposition. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't dividing lines, uh, black, white, Republican, Democrat, independent. It wasn't like that, although those things were very real. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandfather refused to allow me to default to the color of my skin as my excuse. Uh, and because of that, I took responsibility for my actions and my inaction. Yeah. So I think we, you know, I learned words that I didn't understand the meanings to. I learned them by application, like overt and covert. Mm-hmm. You know, to omit or commit. Yeah. I learned that because I practiced those things. It became a part of me. Egypt. What years were, were these? So I was born in '66. Okay. Um, so my prevalent years, I would say kindergarten. You were talking all of the '70s. Yeah. So you '70 to '79 before I later left Cleveland and then relocated to the Chicago suburbs right. to finish out junior high and high school. Where was mom in this picture? You talked about your grand. Yeah. You went from dad who was gone right. immediately to your grandfather, yeah. who obviously had quite an effect on you. Indeed. So where did mom fit into this picture? It must have been extraordinarily difficult for her to be alone with five mm. children. Indeed. Um, what was the relationship like with mom? I'm probably the boy version of my mom. So that ought to start out right there. So wow. we we butted heads mm. in the sense of I wasn't disrespectful. Don't get me wrong. I don't I don't believe in my heart of hearts that I was a a bad son or a headache son. As a matter of fact, I was the I was more the altar boy. Mm-hmm. I I was the teacher's pet. Literally, I when I tell you I learned to perform. I learned I I should have gotten some Grammys back in those days. I mean, yeah. this kid would. I would clean up. I would do as I'm told. I learned, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, no, ma'am. And I wasn't even in the military. That's just the way you were taught. Yeah. And I was very protective of my mother. Uh, but yes, I saw the grieving in her heart over the years uh, and her many failed relationships. Well, I don't know how many more crying mamas did I have to watch, starting with my own, because she's disappointed. She doesn't have a father for her son. Yeah. You see, she's trying to solve a different problem. She's trying to solve the loneliness and the isolationness, yeah. and she's trying to solve the problem of, I need a hero for my son. Yeah. But yet she's reinforcing in me, you need to be the little man. I will never forget that statement. I've heard that a million times in my life. You need to be the little man, or you need to be the man. Mm. 
how am I to be something that I was, it was never modeled to me other than that of my grandfather, who was very strict and stern. So I can come at things very disciplined, Yeah. but that wasn't the man. She was trying in effect to get me to become something that she didn't have and that we didn't have in our family structure. Yeah. So I did learn very quickly to take on responsibility and solve problems that were not my own. I mean, being very honest, my mother's still alive today, but I would never dishonor her. Yes. But it it is truthful and transparent, but yet honoring to say, yes, she made a lot of poor relationship choices with men in general. Yeah. And some of these men, I had face-to-face altercations with the older I grew up. So mm. when you look at my younger brother and I, it was just the two of us as a ragtime brother crew Right. through mid-teen years, so going into high school, then yes, there was another set of three siblings, two brothers and a sister, uh, from a different man. Oh, man. Late, a a complete generation shift. As a matter of fact, I remember when the first of those, uh, of my siblings of them were born, I was coming home from high school. Yeah. I was, I remember walking home from high school and seeing the paramedics driving off away from our apartment. And I knew, hmm, I wonder if that was my mom. Mm. And in fact, it was my mom. I quickly found out that it was my mom. She was gone to deliver that next, you know, next sibling of mine. But that we hold, we have a completely general, full generation gap between us. So um, what I'm hearing is that at a very young age, you had to grow up very quickly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And And how, how does that carry forward into the adult version of the Egypt that I'm sitting across the table from today? Well, for me, I'm that kind of man who finds it extremely paralyzing and difficult to ask for help. Hmm. Some will say a psychologist might love to sit down and reverse (laughs) engineer (laughs) engineer all of this and say, you know, it's pride you're dealing with, sir. It's pride. You know what? Part of it actually is pride. Hmm. But, you know, there is a big part of it that goes unmeasured for me, and it has a lot to do with a different kind of pride. It's the pride that says, I genuinely desire more for you not to hurt for me. I would rather hurt alone and not be a hindrance to you or a bother to you uh, than it would be for me to expose all of my weaknesses Now, interesting enough, you talk about the convergence of where and how that's impacted me today. Now I am that counselor, that uh, coach, that listener, that that caregiver. Egypt, uh, I have so many questions. This is going to (laughs) be the world's first (laughs) six-hour podcast. Exactly. We'll, we'll make sure, uh, listening audience, that you that you sign up for uh, uh, become a subscriber to this because we are going to have extended versions of our conversations. <laughs> this is probably going to be the first one of those. So let me let me get into a couple of things. One one thing I want to say is that many of us, believers and non-believers alike, when we're in pain, when we're in, in a struggle, um, we don't sense God's hand on us, and we certainly don't see any purpose in why me? Why am I going through this? Right. It's so obvious now to me, knowing, knowing who you are and the work that you're engaged in today, it's no surprise that coming from this environment, 
that there would be a natural affinity, that the purpose from your pain would be to mentor those very same young people who are being asked to grow up far too quickly, yeah. see violence, see struggle, mm. not know where their next meal's coming from. And they have somebody now who can truly say, I know exactly how you feel. So there is purpose in our pain. Indeed. But pain is, in a lot of ways, God will use that as a catalyst to first get my attention. Yeah. Two, help me to solve problems. Well, what kind of problems do you say? Well, I'll tell you what kind of problems. First of all, it could be the problems of what I call stupid choices, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, no different than social media. We'll have a relationship status. It's complicated. Well, really, you should have a little parentheses underneath there that says, that's code for I'm currently making stupid choices, right? right? So nothing's com- complicated about just it is what it is, right? Yeah. And if it is what it is, then it will stand on its own merit, whatever it is. Yeah. And my pain doesn't present itself as an it. My pain presents itself as a complex matter that only I can solve mm-hmm. in the privacy of my own mind. Because you see, I've been struggling with that thing. Maybe it's jealousy or anger or pornography or mm-hmm. rage or whatever your thing is, right? Yeah. So we think our thing is so personal. And if people really knew the real me, my goodness, you want, I thank God for this. I thank God that when he created us, that he did not make our inner thoughts audible. Oh dear. Could you possibly imagine <laughs> the death toll on planet earth? You would be living on an <laughs> island by yourself. You would have no friends. Precisely. Whatsoever. So, so I sat back and I say in a, in a spirit of true humility, truly, um, thank you, Lord, for what you've done, and thank you for what you have not done. So, Egypt, let's uh, let's pivot a bit. You said at the very beginning, when I asked you about your name, you said that your mom opened up the Bible, kind of put her finger, searching for a name. Um, we haven't talked about this yet, but are you telling me that you came from a Christian home? Because what I want to understand from you is, um, or I want to begin to go with you in this conversation, is to understand where your first conscious, spiritual conscience sure. uh, was maybe awakened by this idea that there's something out there, God, whatever. So it's interesting. So for those who may think that if you're raised in a Christian home that your life is perfect and there's never any challenges, it sounds like your mom was a believer. She had a Bible. Um, don't know how deep she was into it. You'll, you'll help us out with that. Sure. But um, I guess it points to the fact that regardless of what kind of home you come from, you can face challenge. But help me understand that spiritual background for you. Well, yes, I did grow up in what we would declare to be a Christian home. Okay. But the right question might be, what is a Christian home? Mm. Uh, Good point. So if I step back and I really try to fill in that definition, it'll help understand that you're right. A lot of dysfunction. Okay. So I didn't have a father in the home case. That's one element. That's a glaring element of dysfunction, even though you can still be functional. Uh, I had a, an abusive grandmother. Mm. Okay. So physically abusive. And that was, that was difficult because the vibe 
on any given moment could switch from hot to cold, cold yeah. to hot, uh, and therefore my my skill set of being a master communicator and a pivot player yes. <laughs> helped me to get on the right side uh, or I would be on the downside. Yeah. So there, there was always that. Uh, we went to church every week wow. uh, without fail. My grandfather was the patriarch of that. And let me tell you something, you got your behind up. You, you know, you got on the suit, the same suit every single week with the same clip on tie. And we were, my brother and I were rocking those little clip on ties and uh, he drove us to church. We sat in Sunday school. We went through the mechanics. Um, We sat almost in the same spot in the pew. You know, we turned the same hymnals and, and for me, there was a lot of, um, performance in that early on yes. because I cannot sit here with great integrity and tell you I knew the Lord Jesus and I prayed to receive Christ. I did not. Mm-hmm. I was a great church going, living in a Christian home dwelling. So grew up in the Baptist church. My mother was, call her the rebel, uh, went to a, a, a Pentecostal church and then I later ended up at a Calvary church, so I often say that I, I'm pretty much Baptist Cavacostal. So I'm, I'm kind of <laughs> that's a I'm good kinda, one. I'm like this three three hybrid monster, you know. It's like, uh, but truth be told, yeah, my mother uh, was very emotional and expressive. Mm-hmm. So the Pentecostal uh, way of worship and way of service uh, was something that uh, fit her particular needs, and I think even within that. There were some things about that that early on scared me. So, and when I say scared me, it's just people running around and and screaming loud. And, you know, I wasn't accustomed to that. I was used to sit in your seat, shut your mouth. And when it's done, it's done. It was like sitting in a a hospital waiting room. Like, this is not fun, you know. But the older I grew up, Mm -hmm. that's where, when I got into my teen years, that's where some things started to change. So back in Chicago in the area, you know, the suburb where I lived, uh, there was a, a ministry for youth called Campus Life. Mm. And Campus Life is actually where I was introduced to Campus Life by way of my girlfriend, who is today my wife. Ah. So for those of you listening, don't <laughs> turn down <laughs> any invitations <laughs> to go to any youth events. Get your beside, behind there because you will find a wife or a husband there. That's awesome. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it was in campus life where I, the gospel message was actually made relevant to me. It wasn't that I had never heard it. I had heard it many times, but it was actually made relevant to me. So mm. up until this point, I would have to be honest in saying that the message was not presented in a relevant manner. Yes. Now, here's the part of that statement that scares me. I wonder how many church-going, self-identifying Christians, Christ followers there really are, that are not living a relevant life. Mm. So good for you. You go to XYZ Church. Oh, I go to such and such church, and we always identify our churches by our pastor's name. I don't worship a pastor. Yes. I don't even worship the building, but I do worship the Savior, the Lord, Jesus Christ. So my experience was birthed out of boredom, And you have to go to interest, Mm -hmm. to, hmm, I want to know more, to I'm now receiving Christ, to now I need to do something with this new knowledge I have. This new experience is actually birthing something in me that's taken on a life I can't change, I can't help, I can't control it. So this is awesome. In my learning and experiencing Christ, 
I'm now living out aspects of that. And he didn't, he, Christ never allowed me to live all of it out at once. Yeah. It was always in like segments of an orange. Mm -hmm. This is the period of life where I need you to be here Mm. because I will never get where I need to be if I don't even walk on steps one, two, and three, but yet I want to be glorified on step 12. That's interesting. Well, in Egypt, I know that there's so many out there who believe that um, once we accept Christ, that we're done and we're good. Here, here. And it's like it's an episode or an event. And yet we know better, don't we, that this is a lifelong um, relationship. Absolutely. So I'm curious. So um, you went from um, kind of non-interest um, like I did growing up in, in my Catholic church where there was only Latin spoken and had no idea what was going on. <laughs> right. I was frightened. I knew that because of just the trappings of the place that I now understand as a church. Right. But it seemed very ominous to me. But um, And then interest, and then the more compelling notion of questions that maybe you couldn't answer, other people couldn't answer for you, but you needed answered. So I'm really curious as to what was it? Was it a set of circumstances? Was it an individual? Was it a message? I mean, when did you meet Christ and give your life of service to him? What, what, What did that look like? Interesting enough, I think, I don't have the exact age, but I'll give you the time frame. I remember... I must have been close to being a junior or senior in high school. Mm -hmm. And the town, the city for which I was living, I just got fed up. Mm -hmm. I remember looking at, I had this mirror, this vertical mirror on the back of my wall in the bedroom that I I had. And, uh, you know, when you get dressed, you kind of check your clothes and my pants zipped, is my buttons buttoned? You know, how do I look before I go outside? I remember looking in that mirror and said, you are not going to stay in this town and do nothing with your life. I'll never forget that. I was actually pointing at the mirror, obviously pointing at myself, but I was angry Hmm. with myself. Yeah. And I've been reflecting on that day many years since, and I think I was angry with God. I don't think it was me. I think I got to have a front row seat to see my own inaction yeah. So that was the catalyst, I think, for making this commitment that whatever you want, God. So I will say that my coming to Christ may not have been necessarily the, you know, the altar call moment. Yeah. I want everyone to bow their heads and, you know, <laughs> close their eyes. And I'm just going to, you know, maybe you're that person here today. I want you to come on up front and put your hands up and, you know, that whole experience. And it's like, mm-hmm. eh, okay, that wasn't really me. Mine was like, you want a piece of me, God? You, do you know who I am? You know, yeah. Adrian, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm in this war, like with God, I'm just, I'm angry. Yeah. And, and I'm like, I'm, I'm tired of life the way it is. I'm not, this is not a suicidal message. So for those of you who are struggling with a level of depression where you think I'm checking out, no, I wasn't checking out. What I was tired of was everything that had happened the way it had happened and the way it wasn't happening at that moment. So something had to give. That was my way of saying, you want a piece of me, God? Fine. Mm. Take it all. Mm. You want it? All right, I'm giving you upstairs too. I'm going into the basement. You want some of it? I'm going to open up the cellar. You get all this junk. And I was just basically throwing my junk on God's front lawn. 
and saying, I'm done and I'm going to sit here like a pouty little kid, you know, waiting for somebody to pick up my toys. Yeah. And God must have been laughing. Oh my I, I, I'm going to probably get to heaven and God's going to say, you know what? You remember that day? <laughs> I'm going to be like... I was like, let me introduce you to some of these angels because we were busting the gut when we saw that. We were just like, well, watch them now. Watch them. Watch them. <laughs> you know, I, I could yeah. just see that happening. But truly, God had mercy on me yeah. because what he did is he allowed me that freedom to get my anger, which was an idol for me at the time. Yeah, It was a mounting idol because that would be the first struggle that was rearing its demonic head in my life was this unchecked anger. And that anger was always centered on one person. Yeah. Always centered on one person. That was that I didn't have a daddy. Yeah. And dang it, from this point on, ain't no man telling me what to do. Don't yeah. even try it, bro. You try it, I'm gonna knock your block off. Yeah. That that was my position, and it was obviously ill fated, stupid position, but God dealt with me. And is still dealing with me on that. Interesting. You're describing yourself as this warrior ready for battle. And, you know, challenge, God, bring it on. (laughs) You know, if you think you've got enough to put up with me, you're going to (laughs) convert me. Yeah, go for it. Right. It's interesting now because um, knowing your background and seeing you in action today with young people Mm. as a a mentor, as a speaker, as as a life coach, it sounds like you've turned that in, inward battle indeed into a battle for others. So it's interesting how what I'm seeing or hearing you say is that God can take that warrior inside of you and put it to his use. Yes. And take the anger from you. So um, when you accepted Christ, when yeah. he met that challenge, what changes, if any, did you see in yourself? Well, I'd say the first physical change that I saw. And I mean, it, it almost came immediate. I used to have the most wretched, wretched, nasty, perverse mouth (laughs) on planet earth. I made up cuss words. (laughs) I mean, I made up cuss words in alternate languages. I mean, everything was an M F F B S blah, blah, blah. I mean, it was boop, you could you could just censor me <laughs> seven ways from Sunday. And when I tell you literally overnight, it was it did it go away a hundred percent? No, because there were plenty, plenty of more where that came from. But a good 90% of that went away instantaneously. Wow. I didn't even have I was literally caught in my tracks every time it, it was halfway out my throat <laughs> and couldn't even get past the lip. And it's like the lips was like, you know, yeah. we're accepting no more applications today. <laughs> you know, just That curse word just stopped and it just vaporized. So wow. uh, the Lord called me to be very, and, 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 I'm, and I'm believing this for this reason. God's given me a gift to communicate. Yeah. So as a communicator, why would you destroy your gift? Mm. It sounds like what you're saying to us, Egypt, is that, um, after that first encounter with God, right, when you knew that you were securely His, it sounds like He began to shift your value system, the things that you valued most. What, for our listeners, can you give us some insight into the things that you valued then, 
Sure. And how that has shifted as you've walked with the Lord for these number of years that you've been with him. What are the things that you value most now that you might have, things that you might have valued in the past that you look at yourself and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I was chasing that stuff. Well, and and it's funny you should ask it that way too, Mike, because when when God shifted my value system, he didn't ask for my permission. Mm. And it's like, who do you think you are changing me like that? Wow. Like, I'm going to follow you on my terms, Mm. you know, and... Now, I didn't say that out loud, although I'm saying it out loud now. That's an inside but voice. But yeah. exactly, <laughs> that was that inside voice. I was careful not to get too crazy with that inside voice, but the truth is is I call it uh the thing that God switched, changed or exchanged more than anything was what I call the unholy trinity of me, myself and I. Mm-hmm. I, I was a mm-hmm. I was a great worshipper of me. Yeah. The idea of me yeah, I'm going to star in my next movie. I'm going to be the supporting cast. I'm going to direct it, produce it, executive produce that thing. I'm going to distribute it. I'm going to, you know, it is all about what I could think up and do. Yes. And God removed, see, I sat on my throne mm-hmm. and the idea of me sat on my throne. So when I saw someone with something I wanted, to me, it was a matter of saying, if I focus on that hard enough, and apply myself tactically enough, I can get it. But the problem is with, with getting those things, and I'll fill that in, for example, money. Yeah. That's an easy one. You know, quite frankly, that's real easy. Because when you're broke, there's only one thing you're really thinking about, money. Yeah. Right? Or if you're lonely, there's only one thing you're thinking about, a relationship. Yeah. Right? So that for which you place all of your attention, I will declare that to be the definition of an idol. That for which you are willing to sacrifice all, that is an idol. That which you place in the highest of regard and you follow after, Mm -hmm. even blindly, that too is an idol. So when God removed me from the equation, I started to learn a lot about me, that there wasn't a lot of substance there. And that's kind of that's a humbling thing for me to even admit right now. Egypt, give us one thing currently sure. that you value more than anything that you can imagine that the Egypt of hmm. yesteryear would not have put value in. The legacy of my family, hmm. bar none. Hmm. I, I don't even, that's not something I have to prepare for. Yeah. And... You could conclude, because I answered that so quickly, you could conclude, well, you're telling me that this dude didn't uh, care about his family early on? <laughs> Not at all. Yes. Not at all. I'll be the first to tell you, I I love my wife. Mm-hmm. I die for my wife. You know, a lot of men, men's groups that I speak at conferences will say, I'll die for my wife. It's never been the question. The question is, will you live for them? Oh, boy. I don't believe there's a single woman out there that was like, yeah, I want my husband to be crucified on the front lawn and then we're going to burn him alive and then I'm going to be real proud of that. No, they never asked for that. Mm. All they asked for is that, uh, you know, when when mama needs a break, that you wouldn't embarrass her and say how you complain about you having to babysit your children. See, that was me. Such yeah. stupid commentary. Husbands, fathers don't babysit their own children. You get to love them. You get to watch over them. You get to care for them. You get to protect them. You know, the stupidity of, you know, what is it with buying a sports car with your eight-month-old pregnant wife? Yeah. Me trying to talk my wife into, yeah, we should get this sports car. This will be cool. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we'll put the kid back in the trunk, right? Yeah. Yeah, so that you can drive around with the top down in your cool little sports car. It's the insensitivity of things that shouldn't even be a discussion point. You know, Egypt, um, if someone had tuned in to our podcast for the first time, and many people will, this will be their first time, I'm talking with somebody who, who sounds like they've got it all together. Hmm. They have a strong sense of identity. Yeah. They have a strong sense of values that seemingly could not be shaken. And yet we know, and you mentioned it earlier, that our values are not cheap. They don't come they don't come cheap. Right. But they don't really mean much unless they're challenged. So I'm looking across the table at the together, <laughs> the whole person, Egypt McKee, yeah. father, speaker, coach, life coach, mentor, encourager. These are all values that the world would attribute to you because they see it in your behavior. But I want to go a little deeper with you now. Sure. So on the surface, you got it all going. Can you share with us some of those challenging times? Because this walk with Christ Indeed. is a marathon. I say it over and over again. Indeed. It's, it, ain't in, it's, it ain't a sprint. And there can be times where, as much as we believe, we don't see his presence. We don't mm-hmm. feel his presence. Right. If you feel comfortable enough, absolutely, could you share with our listeners some of the darker times, some of the real struggles where you might have even questioned your own faith. Mm. And then I want to talk about how God met you there. I think that's really, I I want to get, I want to be real with the listeners to let them know, um, you know, there by the grace of God go I. There's no honor necessarily in being a Christian other than what God imbues we're nothing special. Right. But I think it's important for people to understand um, that we all have mm. those times when we're brought to our knees. And I'd love to just, we don't have to go through a litany of challenges because sure. we all have them. But is there anything that sticks out for you? A time where you just literally desperately mm. said, look, are you even here? <laughs> yeah. What's interesting about your question is I absolutely have a, I've got a glaring one. It's, it's so glaring. It's so painful that for me personally, it was the thing that has a life of its own that is so shameful and so burdensome, so prickly so uncomfortable. It's like wearing clothing made out of burlap and barbed wire. So I talked about earlier on in the episode how this not having a father, and and let me preface what I'm about to say as saying, some of you are listening right now. You think that 
there is always a cause and an effect to everything. And for the most part, you are right in the logic Mm -hmm. aspect, but not necessarily in the progression here. So let me go back now. So here I am, this young man, angry. And it's an anger that certainly none of my friends would recognize that because some of my friends didn't have fathers as well. And and maybe that was the draw. Mm -hmm. Okay. So like-mindedness, you know, um, people you hang out, you know, we always talk about, uh, birds of a feather flock together. Yeah. Okay. So that's, uh, that's understandable. But this anger then culminated into a need to get rid of that anger. And for me being a visual creature, it was the sin of pornography, the sin of sexual sin, the sin of lust. And early on in my life, having been introduced to that by a late uncle um, who had uh, unbelievable epic volumes and, uh, you know, just volumes of this, you know, films and magazines hidden in his room and, and, and lived a lifestyle of, of essentially, you know, getting to the place where it was all a con game, you know, relationships, multiple relationships and seeing how this secret part could be uh, exercised in a very public way without anyone knowing. Mm. Problem with all of that was what no one talks about is the destructive nature of things before, only during and after. So how many people would ever really perceive jumping off out of perfectly good airplanes to be a sane thing to do. Mm-hmm. Now, I do that, actually. Yeah. But frankly, I've done it a lot of times <laughs> and perfectly will continue doing so. But uh, we could transfer that to um, illicit drug use. We could transfer that to alcoholism. We could transfer that to cutting. We mm-hmm. could transfer that to a lot of compulsive behaviors, otherwise known as addictive, uh, mm-hmm. toxic addictive behavior. For me, it was a matter of productizing sex as my my agent mm-hmm. my my dosage which could always be private to me um but god wanted total disclosure mm. and i wasn't willing to give total disclosure until such time somewhere early to mid in my marriage, I literally got to a point, I will never forget this, because I call this my Jerry Maguire moment. Mm. Okay, so there's that scene in the movie (laughs) Jerry Maguire where he writes that dang mission statement. Yes. And the thing that you thought was a good idea (laughs) turned out to be a really bad idea. Yeah. So my mission statement was that I was going to write this confession letter that I sensed that God called me to write to my wife. Wow. And um, I started writing this thing, and I'm one page, two pages, Mm. three pages, four pages. The more pages, I'm starting to feel a little (laughs) little proud of myself, man. I'm 
I'm laying it on the line here, Lord. Don't do you see the kind of faith that I'm coming to the table with in this thing here? Look at me. I'm rocking oh. five pages. Ooh, I think we better cut this thing off here, right? Yeah. So I remember looking at it. I read it a couple times, and uh, my heart was pounding through my chest because, you know, what good's a letter, man? Yeah. Seriously. What good's a letter? Going to have to do something with that thing. Yeah. So I remember uh, folding it, putting it in the envelope, and then I addressed it to my wife, and then I kind of kind of held on to that thing because I'm like, I, I, I thought I was showing up here, Lord. I, I gave you enough, right? Yeah. We, we're good here, right? We, we're good, right? <laughs> we're, we're good. Yeah. And, and God's like, you done? Mm -hmm. Okay. No, we're not good. You know what you got to do. Hmm. So, you know, it was, you know, sweating bullets. If bullets yeah. could be flying out of my pores, man, I'd have shot the whole house up. <laughs> um, but I remember the day when I had come face to face with God. And I remember the enemy, you know, Romans chapter seven talks about the things I want to do, I don't do. Yeah. You know, it's the things I hate. I continue to do those things. Actually, I don't just continue to do those. I keep practicing them. Yeah. And the only purpose of practice is to become perfect. The purpose of practice is not to get better. It is to be perfect. Mm. So I kept practicing this stuff until such time where it made me so sick in my spirit and in my head. And there was a part of me that I recognized I was fake now, would others say that about me? Heck no, because they didn't know. Yeah. Uh, would anyone else say, no. They would think, oh, this, this, this guy's great. He's da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, is I knew. I knew. So there came that day, and uh, I gave that letter to my wife, and I had to leave the room. Yeah. Not going to lie. Had to leave the room. I have never, well, yeah, I've never hurt my wife so much. I, I thought my life was over. And you knew, I knew from that moment on, things would not be the same ever again. And yes, um, it needed to happen, and it was surely devastating. So that, that good idea yeah. and following God turned out to, I'm surprised, I'm thankful my wife didn't leave me, in all honesty. Yeah. So I had admitted to and confessed on this deep, secret, this sin in my life that mm -hmm. was destroying me. It was like, uh, like literally like the ether in, in, <laughs> in Thor, yeah. you know, it was this mystical, smoky, nasty, demonic spirit that was just getting its hooks all in me. And the only thing that, uh, would suck all that out. And I mean, suck it out would be the Holy spirit of God getting me over me, myself, and I, and being obedient. Now it's not an issue of faithfulness, because I, I had faith in God. It was purely a matter of obedience. And this is the, what you value, you do? Yeah. Okay, so this is, if you love me, you will obey my word. Mm. Okay, so I did just that, and um, one thing led to another, a series of... Um, 
crying and misery and stress for weeks and months to come, but it led to counseling and it led to, you know, Saddleback Church's well-known Celebrate Recovery, Mm -hmm. uh, where I have forged relationships two decades ago. And those relationships uh, from this event. So this event was very uh, nuclear in the sense of the explosion went off, but the blast radius went throughout my whole family. So all of my relationships were reset, Mm. not in the sense of exposed, like, oh, I'm proud to say this or that. So what God did from that moment, gosh, well over 20 years ago, 20, 25 years ago, was he took that pain and that ugliness and converted it into a ministry, a place of service for me. So that Mm. sick, perverted, nasty thing that I had struggled with for years in one way or another, and it's certainly not like, oh, every day or every other day or every month, or it's just, it, it even resides in the mind. If you're not carrying it out, God says, so is he who looks upon another man with lust in his eyes. He has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Yeah. Wait a minute. Do you know how many women I've had sex with in my mind? Like, seriously. Mm-hmm. And tragically, the, the punitive spiritual truth of that is damning. Yeah. And if that is the law that God has established for lust, has he not established similar with holiness? Yeah. So here we are to current day and, and even the last many a years, and I mean many a years, I have been on my journey. Yeah. And my journey is daily. I'm not going to sit here and I'm not perfect. Uh, and, and actually, let me take that back. I, I'm taking that back because I get tired of people talking about I'm not perfect because it's usually the setup for I'm about to tell you something. Yeah, so and that therefore. You, yeah, yeah. No. Of course I'm not perfect. I, I sh- that's not even something to enter in as a discussion point. Here's the deal. I'm a flawed man, um, but God has taken a flawed man and he's made a ministry out of my flaws and out of my sin. And it is sin. There's nothing holy about it. You know why? Because we don't promote that. It is a dirty industry that comes from the pit of hell. Yeah. It's only... No one can say, and certainly none of your listeners who have had similar or similar-like experiences can say, you know what? When I'm lusting, I feel so much closer to God. I feel so holy when I'm, you know, in the bathroom alone doing my thing. And no, you don't. No one has ever said that because you feel repulsed and, and you feel disgusted. You feel shame, great shame. And it is a reciprocal wheel. Because in that shame, you only want to get rid of that shame, but you only know one way that's been pre-programmed in your mind and your behavior, right? Because you've created habits out of this. So you can end up going back to the very thing that you think that's going to bring you so-called peace or a numbness. And it is a numbness. And I think it's a numbness beyond numbness. I think it's a voidness. It's an emptiness. Because numbness is what, say, morphine does after surgery. And you're just like, numb the pain. Numb the pain. There's still like a slight tinge of the pain there. 
But uh, this is avoidness. This is like remove me, yeah. remove the pain and me. I, I see only a silhouette of myself. And because of that, uh, that has been a very critical uh, foundational part of my ministry. So I am drawn to not only those who struggle with sexual sin, yeah. but those sister or cousin-like uh, addictive compulsive behaviors that come alongside that, such as alcoholism or yeah. cutting or depression. And, you know, we give it all kinds of names, but the truth of the matter is, is that my time with others is really to build them up. I used to, I, I would always say, I, quite frankly, I love saying it. I don't build buildings, but I do build up people. Mm-hmm. And because God has rebuilt me, he has actually knocked all the bricks down because the entire structure was bad. And the foundation was bad. So God has rebuilt me, and I'm, I'm selling new bricks, and I'm selling new backhoes. And I'm, and I'm like, listen, your soil is bad, okay? So you can't have a good so- foundation without good soil. And you can't have a good foundation without good uh, structure and, and right balance and right load-bearing. And then you can't have a right vertical position without right engineering and right angles. You can't just, this isn't Tetris. You aren't just laying whatever log on top of another log, hoping that somehow you'll work out in the end. And quite frankly, most people live their lives on the edge of that. It's all based on if I can just get over this moment and feel okay about this moment. It isn't even about your feelings. That's what I was worshiping feelings over worshiping God. Yeah. And that was another idol. So I had to pull that idol down and that was exposed to me. And then my darkness, little by little, I'm not going to say, this is not an overnight story. This took years for me to get through this. And then my healing happens every day. And every time I minister and devote myself to scripture and serve others, I have a longevity story now because it wasn't a drug that got me here. It was only the Holy Spirit that got me here. Well, I want to, Egypt, I'm so glad that you were willing to go there. Absolutely. Share this with people that are listening. Um, you know, I think at times we uh, we we, ta- we we run away from God mm. because we are fearful that His standards are so high yeah. that we could never ever meet them, and we beat yeah. ourselves into submission and make excuses as to why I, I really can't do this Christian thing anymore. Right. So that's a that's a bare naked struggle that you're talking about right now. Yes, it is. So Egypt, were there any times during that struggle or any of the others that you faced sure. in your life that you ever caught yourself saying, you know what, this Christian thing is just too much. <laughs> I, I don't think I can yeah. do this anymore. I think, I, I think even though I may know in my heart that the direction I'm going to head into yeah. isn't good for me, I'm just, I'm just never going to measure up. I, I just can't do this. I mean, did you ever have that kind of a moment or, or did you, were you able to say, no, I know God's there. I, I know he loves me. I mean, where, where, where were you on that, on that balance? What's, uh, what's so good about your question is, um, one that I will equate to the 
question that we ask others about a testimony. And yeah. then there's always that there's always that one who comes out, I was saved when I was five years old, and I've been walking with the Lord faithfully for 95 years. You know, and you're like, man, <laughs> sit on, down. Man. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> get, yeah. like, get, give me someone with a really gnarly story. Um, yeah, I've, I've doubted my faith probably every day. Mm. Um, and let me... Let me preface this because I think it would go to say, I don't want anyone thinking, oh, this dude doubts his faith. Well, what kind of faith is is it really faith or do you really believe? Of course, I do believe. I think God calls me and I took a likening and a very seriousness to the scripture that calls us to test the spirits. Yes. Test the spirits. Yeah. So, yes, I have doubted the Lord many times, but none ever so grave that I was willing to so-called quit my faith. I never came to that place because one of my spiritual gifts that God has given me is is the gift of faith. (laughs) And it's very difficult for me to undo that gift because life has been brutally, and I mean brutally difficult at times, to the point of you know, you can add everything on there, uh, homelessness, uh, dejectedness, loss of reputation. You could add all those things who have come face to face with a lot of those throughout my lifetime. And I've not lost my faith. I've not even considered that as a means for loss. As a matter of fact, the perspective forced me, literally forced me in a position of looking at circumstances differently. I looked at the circumstances as it really it's now it's a deep honor to be allowed by God to endure this crazy thing. And I'll tell you my pivotal, pivotal moment, which is current history, came on May 17th of 2019. Mm. And uh, you'll remember this well because we're, we're, we're back in the office and I'm on a particular floor in the building where it's a relatively large floor plate, but I was the only person on that floor. Yeah. And there was no reason for anybody. And I mean, no reason for you. Oh, I think I'll just go up to the third floor. Why? You know, in the course of your day, you'd just be doing your thing. Uh, So I look at all that could have gone wrong with no one ever coming through there. But, uh, you know, having one of our partners come through just to be cruising on through. And I had what was considered to be either a TIA or a stroke. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that episode led to uh, dispatching the emergency, uh, you know, paramedics. Uh, rushing me off to the hospital. Uh, I'll never forget being hauled in through the doors, feeling like I'm in a NASCAR pit crew, you know, like flying me through there with doctors jumping in on me and sticking me. I'm The fact that I had two IVs at once was, mm-hmm. I've never seen that before. Yeah. I'm going to just tell you right now, I felt, I, I feel, I feel sorry for all the pin cushions out there. <laughs> uh, I got your back fellas. Yeah. I, I do. I know how you feel now. Um, yeah, three days inpatient, having every test under the sun, uh, ending with an angiogram is not how to spend the weekend. But yeah. I came face to face with God. And when I say that, not in a place of despair, but there was some residual just let go and trust me issues yeah. uh, that I hadn't considered issues. I considered them um, 
maybe those are just those are my those are my developed nuggets that I get to keep in my little briefcase. And God wanted me to empty the the last of that out because he could have chosen to to take me out of this world. Yeah. He very well could have. Matter of fact, the medical professionals made that very clear. Matter of yeah. fact, so clear, uh, they went the opposite direction. They're like, honestly, we don't even know why you're alive. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're trying to prove medically, scientifically, uh, that you shouldn't be alive right now. So... Thank you, doctor. I'm I'm sitting right here, just so you know. Bedside manner, you, you failed today. You failed, okay? So it caused me to take very seriously that my life is not my own. Yes. So I became a dead man to this world again, yeah. but that day was the it. Yeah. So when we say it is what it is, no, that was my it day. And... And I knew who the Lord was in my life. And when I got up and left that hospital, mm. I was never the same. Mm -hmm. And I am living that out right now. So I have no problem speaking up to whomever. Yes. The mob, a government, yeah. group think, people who are hurting, people who think they've got it together. Yeah. Uh, I know who I am. Yeah. And I know whose I am. And I do not waver in that. Let's start landing this plane. All right. Direct question. Is it easier or harder to follow Jesus today than when you first believed? I got to be honest. Um, not to imply that I haven't been honest up to this point. <laughs> <laughs> Please be honest with exactly. our listeners. Uh, no, in all honesty, I think it's easier, and I'll tell you why. Mm -hmm. Um our world is in trouble. There you go. Um, I can't even listen to the radio. I can't turn on the news. I can't even watch. You can't even watch ESPN these days without them getting political. That's a sports channel. Like, let's be real here. There, this the country is burning. The world is burning. And the more that it does, and don't get me wrong, because I am finding no joy in that. I desire none of this to be happening. Yeah. But it has put me on such notice. I know that my faith is real. Yeah. I know that what I know that I know is legitimately real. And that being the case, yeah. I have everything I need. Um, I'm ready to see the Lord today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not asking to go do that because somebody out there, well, I hope you do that. You know, it's like, listen, um, I'm not going before the Lord until the Lord has appointed me to be there and not a moment sooner and not a moment later. But I will tell you this while I am here, um, I have a purpose and that's greater than a mission. Okay. So the mission is to accomplish essentially is it's a better word than using goal. Yes. Um, but my purpose is to fulfill, uh, the gifting that God has equipped me for, for a specific battle. So my battle is uh, one to seek out the broken and uh, lead them to the restorer of brokenness. And uh, that's really it in a, in a, you know, mission statement or in that certainly it in a nutshell is that uh, my faith today is uh, it's resolute. 
That is the best way for me to describe it. It is yeah. resolute and it is firm and it is focused. Egypt, if you were going to be giving some advice to the 15, 16, 17-year-old Egypt that you knew from where you stand today and your knowledge of your walk and your relationship with Christ, what would you tell him? (laughs) I would tell my younger me the same thing that I tell young men and young women today. I believe in you, Mm. and I'm going to be here, and we're going to do this together. And that is the open door that I pursue with every single person. And that is what the younger me would have needed to hear. Yeah. Is this someone believes in me Mm. and doesn't even know me. Yeah. And that would have changed my life. Wow. Now, God did find a different way. Yes, as he always does. (laughs) But if that was spoken to me, I would have believed it. Yeah. I would have. Final question, Egypt. Um, When we think of the concept of standing stones, it represents something really big. Um, In my last broadcast with Mike Chaddock, who you know well, Pastor Mike, I asked him to share some biblical grounding for the audience around that notion of standing stones. And he said a word that I want to dive deeper into in some f- future broadcast, but he said it really is comes down to the word remember. Yeah. God was constantly saying, remember, remember, remember. And he was saying that because he knew that we would forget. We would forget. Yes. Would forget. And the purpose of those standing stones was to remember an event or a life or an encounter with God so that anyone who passed by it would be open for the story of what happened at that point. Yeah. So there's a standing stone that will last beyond your life here. And it's got your name on it. So what is it that you want to have that, generation that will pass by that stone remember about Egypt Hmm. McKee Hmm. I love that and the word is a common one but for me I think it means a little different in that uh, brings me to my knees because it's the words I've always wanted to hear, and I know I will someday when I stand before God. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom of my joy. And for me personally, faithfulness. For it to be said of me, and not just said of me, but believed of me from times to come, this man was faithful. This man was faithful. Mm. And uh, that is what matters to me because that is what matters to the Lord, that I be a good and faithful servant. Mm -hmm. And nothing else matters. Thank you for that. Thank you.
Well, this has been an absolute pleasure and an mm-hmm. honor to just sit here and talk about things that have meaning. Um, I said at the outset that people would be inspired, <laughs> that, <laughs> that they would prayerfully be encouraged, and I think that we've accomplished that here today. And so I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for your heart. I want to thank you for being brave and courageous enough to be vulnerable so that people could hear the real story, uh, your story that's unique from all others. So uh, with that, I just want to say thank you for coming today. Thank you for having me, Mike. It is truly an honor, one, to know you and call you brother and friend Uh, But to be a part of this, uh, there's something to be said about the healing process. It never ends. So until I breathe my last, the healing doesn't end. So every time I'm able to share my testimony uh, or maybe word on the street, every time I'm able to share my life, (laughs) um, I grow from that. I grow deeper and I grow taller and stronger. So because of that, I am deeply honored and uh, deeply honored uh, to be in the presence of both you and Josh and to be in this podcast room and for whoever's listening to know that you do matter. You matter to God because he is the one who created you. And, um, you know, lest the Lord call us home sooner than this podcast is produced. Yes. My farewell words are always until we meet again. Be encouraged. And we will be. And we are. Thank you so much, brother. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week. If you haven't yet, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out our website at standingstonestories.com. Tune in again next week. And until then, may God richly bless you.